John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. This passage is like an overture in John's gospel. So many of the themes that will come up again and again in John's gospel are brought out to light in this overture passage. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. All right, well, um, uh, how about we pray again and ask for God's help as we um, yeah, keep this passage open and we'll, we'll be working through it, but um, yeah, we certainly need God's help, so let's, let's pray and ask him for that now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who delights to make yourself known, uh, that you do so through your word, and so uh, we pray that uh, you would be kind to us this morning. Please work powerfully in our lives and in our midst by your spirit, bringing this word to life. Give us ears to hear it and hearts that would love to respond as you'd have us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be able to kick this series off. I've heard just a little bit of that snapshot that over Easter you were having a skeptic's Easter and now trying to think along with John as he teaches in his gospel uh, who Jesus is, that's just really exciting. And, um, and it's, it's great to be able to kick this 
uh, series off and to begin that task uh, together, I guess, of thinking about who Jesus is. I feel like Richard has almost stolen my my introduction, but he asked exactly the right question. How would uh, you share an answer to that question with someone else? Like if you had the opportunity to talk with someone about who Jesus is, how would you approach that? How would you approach that? How would you communicate to someone else in a short, clear fashion who it is that Jesus is and why that is significant? Uh, It might be that you'd go for that uh, that short, bite-sized answer answer that um, I think some of us called out Jesus is the Son of God um, was the answer here. There's lots of those kind of short answers that the Scriptures give us, isn't there? Uh, Perhaps something like Jesus is King or Lord or Judge, a friend. There's so many different ways you could complete that. Jesus is uh, just in those short, uh, bite-sized, couple-of-word answers. Maybe, Maybe you would approach that task of uh, conveying who Jesus is by sharing a story, maybe one of the stories from the Gospels. Uh, there are lots of great stories that really paint a picture of who Jesus is. Perhaps you uh, would uh, go with, like, Jesus calms the storm to show something of his power, or Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead to show something of his command over death. Would you use a personal anecdote, a story from your own life, something that reveals, I guess, the work that God is doing in your life right now, or something that you've experienced uh, that, that um, shows something of what Jesus means to you or uh, how he might be meaningful to the person that you're speaking with. There are lots of different ways to do this, to answer this question of who is Jesus, which is good, actually. It's good that we have options because uh, it can be quite challenging to get it across, and sometimes different people need to hear different things. Now, let me ask, would your strategy change at all if you were talking to someone who already knew a little bit about the Bible or about Christianity, perhaps you're talking to a Jewish person or uh, to a Muslim person who's familiar with the Old Testament or something like that? Would your strategy change if you were speaking to someone from a different religious background? You shared some things in common with them, but not everything. You know, maybe you'd try to use words or ideas that they know about rather than the um, the jargon words or things that Christians will just understand what you say. You might need to do a little bit of work in translating ideas. But it's with that that idea in mind, that question of how would you go about communicating about Jesus to someone who shared a little bit of what you might believe as a Christian person, if you're a Christian person, uh, but there's something new that's happened and you want to get that across. How would you go about that task? Because that I think, is really what John is doing in chapter one of his gospel. As we heard those verses read, uh, we'll see how John approaches this challenge challenge of communicating who Jesus is. Uh, They form, uh, as Chris described it, the overture, uh, often called the prologue to John's gospel. Uh, He is faced with this challenge. He's got people in the first first century context who are, they're not all the same, They don't all think the same. They don't all believe the same. They don't have the same interests or assumptions about the world, and they certainly don't all share the same religion. Uh, So that's helpful because we live in a world that's different to John's in lots of different ways. But it's obviously, in this regard, very much the same for us as well. Uh, John's world, just like our world, is one in which 
Not many people know about Jesus, but they all really, really need to. John realizes he has this extraordinary message to get across. Uh, And so how is he going to do it? Well, John's strategy is very interesting. John's strategy is he, he decides to try and connect with the two most obvious groups who have an interest in uh, spiritual, metaphysical, religious things. And for him, those two groups are people from the Jewish faith, John's own background, and people familiar with Greek philosophical thought, uh, people who are kind of uh, interested in thinking about the philosophy of, uh, of the ancient world. And I want to show you how he tries to do this and unpack a little bit about uh, around each group. Uh, so we'll start first with, with the Jewish or the, the Bible people, people who have some familiarity with God from the Old Testament and know him as creator. For this audience, his main strategy is to connect Jesus into the big story of what God has been doing right throughout history, and in particular, to connect Jesus into the biblical story about creation. He tries to connect Jesus into the Bible's much bigger story about the creation and God being the creator God. And he does this in a number of really interesting ways. Firstly, he takes advantage of well-known phrases that this audience, this Jewish audience, will already know and remember and resonate with. The way he starts his gospel, it's a little bit like uh, thinking about my current audience, Australian people, if I said to you, Australians all let us rejoice, for we are young and free, right? That those are the words that immediately come to mind for you. I need to do no work at all to lead you to think the next thing when I say Australians all let us rejoice. John trades on a similar familiarity that many of his audience will have. When he says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, he needs to do no work at all to know that the next thing that comes to mind for a person familiar with the Jewish scriptures is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Opening words of the Bible. But what does John actually say next? He subverts those expectations and creates a lot of interest, I think, by finishing that phrase, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he just kind of lobs this new idea in there, this idea of the Word. Who is the Word? He'll eventually get to explaining it, but it's clear that he's trying to draw a a very obvious link uh, between this word and the creator, God. It's clear he has Genesis in his mind, uh, the first book of the Bible, and he wants to pick up on a creation theme because keep reading in verse two, through him, the word, all things were made. This word, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. As you continue through the book of John in coming weeks, you're going to see uh, many associations being drawn between Jesus and the creation story. Often, the transitions between episodes happen with words like on the third day, or on the next day, or something like that. Picking up on the repetition of the days, that motif that you see in the creation narrative in Genesis, even down to things like the number of signs that John tells us about Jesus doing. 
We know Jesus did way more signs than John records for us in his gospel. From the other gospels, there are different things that Jesus does, but John uh, decides to tell us about, guess how many? Seven, that's right. Just like the six days of creating and one day of rest that we find in Genesis. John has many famous I am sayings in, uh, as he reveals who Jesus is. Jesus uh, says, I am the bread of life and so on. Again, the number of I am sayings in John's gospel is seven. Uh, John is not overly subtle in making the point, I suppose. He wants us to know and, and to connect Jesus into this, uh, this bigger story of uh, what God has been doing in creating in the beginning and now maybe something is happening again as Jesus steps on to the stage of world history. So what is John's point? What does he want us to know about Jesus just from these uh, opening verses? Well, several things. Firstly, that Jesus, the Word, predates creation. The Word, this Jesus, as he takes on flesh, the Word who becomes Jesus as he takes on flesh, is not a created being. He's rather with the Creator God in the beginning and active in creation. The Word, who becomes Jesus at this particular point in time, takes on flesh but is to be understood as divine, on the Creator side of the divide, not the creation side. And that tells us that the story of Jesus is not one that just comes out of nowhere. He is connected to that great story of, of God and his people that we read in the Old Testament. And perhaps most importantly, John's point is that his, by leading with all these associations to the first creation account, John is signaling to us, his readers, that when Jesus steps onto the world stage, we're not just meeting another prophet or a teacher or a priest or a king, something much more profound is taking place. The Jesus story is actually a second creation story. The Jesus story is, an, is a second creation story. With Jesus, a new creation is breaking into this world and things will never be the same again. Okay, so that's uh, trying to connect with a, a Jewish audience or an audience that's familiar with the Old Testament story. What about for that audience that's familiar with the kind of philosophical uh, teachings and ideas that are part and a currency in, in, um, in John's world? Well, for a philosophically literate audience, uh, I, I should just say, I think that the Bible audience is the primary one, okay? And that, that's what kind of why I've spent most time on that. I'm just going to say a very few things about this philosophical audience. Um, but there is a good suggestion here in John that he thinks more broadly than just people who already know the Bible. Uh, particularly people who uh, are into ancient Greek philosophy, things like Stoicism. And the reason I say that is that John describes Jesus as the Word in John chapter 1 verse 1, as we heard. Uh, the Word uh, translates uh, the in, from the original Greek, this word logos, you can see how it's written in Greek, uh, logos, looks like logos, but I guess you pronounce it um, logos if you want to sound like a Greek pers person, um, take it from me with the surname. Um, <laughs> now, you might think that word is a fairly generic sounding thing in English, and it is. Uh, word, you know, it's, it's fairly bland, doesn't have a lot of 
extra attached meaning to it. But in an ancient world, and, and particularly for people familiar with, uh, with stoic teaching, uh, the, the philosophical teaching of the time, logos, this word logos, is their way of capturing and talking about the idea of reason, kind of capital R, reason. This idea is that there's an impersonal principle of reason that governs the universe and kind of orders things and makes things happen as they do. So this reason with a capital R, uh, this kind of logos idea, it's not really like the Bible's God in that it's impersonal. It's maybe a bit closer to the idea of fate. Uh, but the idea is that reason or logos is this organizing principle of the universe and a little spark of universal reason, a little spark of this universal reason uh, kind of resides within each person in their teaching. It, it resides in each one of us. In Stoic philosophy, the goal is to, to live in keeping with this logos, uh, to attain true meaning and dignity in life. To live in line with logos is to live, I guess, uh, life in the best way possible. And so to an audience who knows Greek philosophy, there is this additional hook that John throws out there. To those who think that it's important to live in line with logos and, and to live a life that's based on this kind of reason and ordering principle of the universe, but which is impersonal to them, well, John says, if you care so much about this logos, well, would you like to meet him? Because he's very much a person, and I'm going to tell you all about him because he and I were close friends for a number of years. I know a little bit about this logos, this word who became flesh. All right, so, um, so John is off to a good start. He's introduced us to Jesus in two ways, by suggesting that he is present with God in the beginning, before creation, and therefore on the creator side of things, not the creation side of things, but becomes flesh, steps into creation at this particular point in time as Jesus. He's drawn our attention to Jesus as the word, as the logos, the organizing principle of the universe or reason. Uh, where John takes us next is to show us why, why that all matters, why Jesus matters. Why would it make a difference to know him? Uh, we're looking at the prologue to John's Gospel. It's the introductory paragraphs. It aims to grab our attention, signal the key, uh, the key things that we can expect to discover in the rest of the narrative and to create expectations, whet our appetite for lots, what's to come. Uh, and part of that is to give us a big picture hint about why Jesus matters. And the first one is a big one. Uh, it's massive, really. Jesus matters because he is the one who reveals who God truly is. He reveals who God truly is. And that's a big deal, obviously, because it's the precondition for having a genuine relationship with God, our Creator. Come back to the passage again and, and just skim over verses six to eight. That passage, uh, so that, that paragraph, uh, the second uh, little chunk there, verses six to eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He comes as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. Uh, we see John the Baptist here introduced and the idea of him being a witness, he, uh, he bears testimony to Jesus who is described as the light. And then verse seven, so that through him, so that through this light, all may believe. 
Uh, again, there's this echo of the creation story. Day one says, let there be light. But here, the idea is not about the light of the sun or the stars or the moon, but the light of God's revelation that moves people from dim darkness to seeing clearly who God is, seeing God's glory, his character, his grace. Now skip down to verse 14, where John takes another angle to help us see just how determined God is to make himself known. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. I guess the summary is that God is so determined to be no a bull that he becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. One translation puts it like this, God moved into the neighborhood. That's a great way of capturing this idea of what's going on here. God moved into the neighborhood. The word made his dwelling echoes the way God would be among his people in those Old Testament times as the tent that God's people carried from place to place. He would make his dwelling among them in that tent. But now God has gone one massive step further. He's literally become one of us. There's this famous illustration given to describe the challenge that the different religions have in saying our way is the right way. Uh, have you seen this picture before? It's a picture of an elephant and some blind men. I'm sure you have, and I'm sure you're, you're familiar with this, but just in case you're not, uh, the story goes that the elephant uh, is kind of representing God. God's an elephant for some reason, uh, but it just sort of works in this, in this story, this fable. And the people uh, represent the different religions or worshippers or people who are trying to discover something about God. And the story goes that each of the blind men reach out and grab a different part of the elephant in their quest to know what God is truly like. One grabs the elephant's leg and says, God is like a tree. They're feeling this large, solid thing and God is like a tree trunk. Or one grabs the tail and comes to a very different conclusion, God is like a brush, feeling the bristles and so forth. Or one grabs the elephant's trunk and decides that God is like a hose or a snake, or something like that, whatever it is. You get the idea, okay? And the fable is told to make the point that all religions are essentially grasping at the same thing, but only accessing and describing little parts of the whole. So they're all a little bit right, but none of them has the whole picture. It has this common sense appeal, and I think many people in Western society believe something like this is actually the case when it comes to religions. They are all basically the same and none of them can really claim to truly know what God is like. But John in his prologue is helping us to see that there are some really fatal flaws in this analogy, two really big flaws in this analogy. The first is that in this story, in the story as it's told about the blind man and the elephant, the elephant is mute. The elephant doesn't speak. But John chapter 1 helps us to see that God reveals himself to us through his word by speaking to us. 
This would be a little bit like the guy grabbing the leg of the elephant and saying, uh, God is like a tree, and then the elephant turns around and says, no, I'm not, you dork, I'm an elephant, and stop rubbing my leg, or something like that. Like he actually speaks and makes himself known and can say, this is what I'm actually like. But I guess other religions have that too. Uh, Some other religions claim to have the words of God or something similar, revealing what God is like. And so the second flaw that John 1 really exposes uh, is this. This whole picture, this whole scenario, relies on the intuition that God and us are completely other. God is God, we are mortal, God's invisible, inaccessible to our ordinary senses. That's the point of the blindfolds. We're left groping around in the dark. And that would be true if Christmas never happened. But at Christmas, we celebrate the moment when God ceased being other. God not only reveals himself by speaking to us through his word, God, in a very real sense, he just rips the blindfolds off and says, hey, I'm not an elephant. I've become one of you. Take a look. Here's what I'm really like. What an extraordinary gift. A moment that forever changes what we mean when we say, I know what God is like. We can say that confidently and mean it without a hint of arrogance, because it's got nothing to do with how clever we've become or how well we've managed to kind of find our way up to God. It's actually got everything to do with God coming down and becoming one of us, making himself knowable, becoming flesh, making his home amongst us for 30 odd years, becoming a human, the man, Jesus. The second reason why Jesus is so significant is that he is the link between knowing about God in that abstract sense. Uh, So this is great that he's revealed himself, but there's more. Uh, There is an invitation to become family. The second big reason why this all matters is that uh, we are not just getting information in the abstract sense about God, but getting to know God in the intimate relational sense of a family relationship. Uh, Lots of people know things about me. Uh, You all know, now that you've seen me, how tall I am. You don't know whether I snore a lot, but lots of people do know that about me. You don't know much about my sense of humour yet, but I don't know, maybe, maybe you will get the chance to I won't subject you to that, actually. It's not good for anyone, but um, there are lots of things that you can know about me just, you know, as information. But there are just a handful of people who know me in that intimate family sense, mainly my wife and my two girls. My two girls in particular are the only ones who can call me dad and get to relate to me as dad. That's a privilege for them. Now, Look at verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, receiving Jesus, believing or entrusting yourself to Jesus makes it possible for people to become children of God to know God as Father. 
Future parts of John, the Nicodemus story, which you'll probably come across in a few weeks' time in particular, will flesh this out, but you'll see a hint here of just how much is on offer uh, in those last words of verse 13, born of God. The implication here is not just that we become family, but we are actually reborn and made a new creation in the process. Now, there's so much more we could say in terms of Jesus' significance. We haven't really talked at all about what God has done, about the Old Testament law and so forth, all that great stuff about grace. I hope you might have a chance to to discuss that in midweek groups or certainly to unpack it in future weeks as you keep moving through John. But to bring things together, I just want to reflect on the significance of what John has just taught us and to zoom in on one key point, uh, and that is the significance from John, John's uh, prologue, verses 1 to 18, uh, the significance of the fact that God wants to be known. That's something that really stands out to me from John's prologue, is how he powerfully challenges that base assumption of our culture, which I think is that it's very difficult or even impossible uh, to actually know God. John uh, really helps us to see that that's not at all the case. Many people just assume that the God question is this kind of quaint historical relic, some nice myth that some people believe, but it's been discredited by someone, we're quite sure, probably science or something like that, and so we don't need to think about it too much. And people that do, they kind of seem weird or nasty sometimes, so it's just not something that many in our Western culture feel compelled to give much thought to. They just assume that there either is no God or Uh, that it's really, really hard or impossible to get to know whoever that God or gods might be. However, there are lots of people also uh, who are not quite like that. They may, and you may be one of these people yourself, will be open to there being something more than we can see, open to there maybe being something spiritual going on, maybe a God, but they just haven't yet figured out with certainty how to say this is God, or this is what God's like. Uh, There are many people who are open but agnostic. Even if there was a creator God, how would I know uh, which religion is the right one to put me in touch with him? Now, John cuts right through all of this. He cuts through the disbelief, the people who say it's impossible, too hard, uh, don't need to worry about it. And he cuts through the agnosticism, the indecision, or the I'm not sure side of things. The, The really profound insight of John 1, 1 to 18 is this. It's not hard to know if there is a God. And it's not hard to know who is the true God. And the fundamental reason for that is because God himself has chosen not to stay hidden, but to reveal himself for all to see and in a way that we can all understand. There are lots of things that are hard to discover or know. For me, uh, engineering background, poetry is hard. Like, I just find that way too complicated. I don't know why people can't just say what they mean when they use their words. Things like solving world hunger, climate change, for most of us, very, very difficult. Knowing God is not hard because Jesus has made him known. The problem is actually that we don't want to know God, even though he's made it entirely possible to do so. Verse 11 uh, points in this direction. It says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Very often the problem is that we don't want to know God. And it's not hard to imagine why that could be the case. We've all experienced what it's like to, to keep God at a distance, to try and push him out of our world. 
whether we're Christian people or not. And so this leads to a, leads, uh, to a way to point out a key reason why this church community exists and why groups like ES exists and why it really matters that we fully embrace who God has called us to be. We believe that God wants to make himself known. There is room for more in his family and we have the immense privilege of pointing people to this Jesus, the, the light who has come into this dark world. So two things in closing, if you are here and still trying to discover who God is and whether there actually is anything to this Christianity thing, well, you have come at a great time. John's gospel is an amazingly helpful place to be discovering who Jesus is. I don't know whether uh, if today uh, what we've talked about has answered any of your questions. If so, fantastic. But if you still have some, my encouragement is uh, be persistent. God wants to make himself known to you. Keep coming and seeing uh, in future weeks. Uh, I think John will be very, very helpful to you. And uh, for those who are here and already Christian people, the majority, I suppose, my prayer is for us that this news that God has made himself known in Jesus, wants to be known by others, would really grip and shape our hearts. That we would be a people and a community that overflows with the good news of the gospel uh, so that more people get to experience what it is to be a child of God. Uh, can I lead us in prayer uh, to that end? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much as we, as we started by, uh, by thanking you for how you desire to reveal yourself and having uh, dwelt on these, uh, this opening to John's gospel, we thank you for uh, just the extraordinary lengths that you've gone to to make yourself knowable uh, by uh, all people. Uh, not just knowable uh, in an abstract sense, but knowable as part of your family. Thank you for the immense privilege it is uh, for many of us to know that, uh, to have been reborn uh, into your family. We pray that we would uh, really uh, be encouraged and heartened by that and also to see the immense privilege it is to welcome others uh, into your family. Uh, help us not just to keep this good news to ourselves, but just as John did, uh, to look for every way possible to share this great news of the gospel with others so that they might hear it and in believing it come to have life in Jesus. And for those who might be here today, uh, still thinking about Jesus and who he is, I pray that you would uh, please help them in their quest to know you. Thank you that you've made it as easy as possible. And as they see Jesus, I pray that he would answer their questions and draw uh, them uh, to know you as Father as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.